We're going to be reading from Isaiah 6 today. You can find it in your bulletin if you want to follow along. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the tongs of the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their hearts and understand with their hear with their ears and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This is the word of God. Sorry to disappoint, little fellow. We're not all done. We're just getting started. <laughs> Thank you, Angela, for reading for us. Uh, for those of you who uh, might be visiting, uh, we, when, if we have time, at the end of the, the message, we uh, take an opportunity to answer some questions that uh, you might have. So uh, you can jot down those questions maybe as we're uh, working our way through, through the passage together. And then you can either... Raise your hand and ask the question, or if you'd rather, you can text me. I have my phone here. Uh, my number is right there in the bulletin. You can text me your question, uh, and we can get to it. <clears throat> if, you've, uh, if you've been hanging around Grace Valley Church for a while now, a number of months perhaps, or, or, or almost the, the year that we have existed, you hear a term thrown around a lot here, particularly by me, I admit, but I'm, I'm expecting it to catch on. It's this term, gospel-centered. We talk about the gospel as being the center of the life and ministry of Grace Valley Church. We, we focus on the gospel here at Grace Valley Church, and we want to, to center the communal life of Grace Valley Church on the gospel. And that's a hard thing to understand. Well, what does that mean? What is that? Oh, by the way, someone want to turn down the fans a bit? Uh, if someone could do that, because they're going pretty fast. And I just think, man, what if one of them... <laughs> yeah, right? 
you don't want to be them. That's how it is. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, so the gospel, we, how do you understand this? What, you know what DNA does, right? <clears throat> you know what DNA does, right? DNA is the instructions for an organi- organism that, that direct its development, its survival, its reproduction, that kind of thing. And so the DNA of something directs what it's going to be. So when you have a tomato seed, you look at the tomato seed and you go, I don't know what kind of seed that is, I can't tell. But everything that is needed for it to become a tomato plant that bears tomatoes is in the DNA of that seed. And that's why it produces tomatoes instead of zucchinis, right? Well, the gospel is the DNA of Grace Valley Church. We want the gospel to be the thing that directs our development, survival, and Lord willing, reproduction as a church. Now, obviously, if you're going to be a gospel-centered church, that means you need to have people who are gospel-centered because the gospel is, or sorry, the church is the people, right? I don't know if you know this, but you, you say, hey, let's go to church. That's theologically inaccurate. <laughs> You actually meet as church. We are church. When we come together on Sunday mornings, we are the church. We are meeting as the church. So the, so the church, if it's going to be gospel-centered, needs to have people who are gospel-centered, right? What does that mean? I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Unfortunately, a lot of Christians don't really know what that means. What I mean by this is, They believe the gospel. What's the gospel? Very simple definition of the gospel. There's a lot of them. Here's one I like a lot. Jesus lived the life I should have lived and died the death I should have died. That's a very simple definition of the gospel. And Christians believe the gospel. They believe that Jesus lived the life they should have lived and died the death they should have died. But when it comes to kind of applying that concept to their lives... In the day-to-day living from Monday through Saturday, frankly, they're not exactly sure how to do that. Yes, they read the Bible. Yes, they pray. Yes, they go to worship and they go to church. And that's great. And that's important. But listen, the Apostle Paul in 1 Colossians, he says something interesting. Look at, you can see this on the front of your bulletin because it's quoted right there. Uh, On the front of the bulletin, under Gospel Grid, it says, All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. Paul says the gospel is continually bearing fruit and it's continually growing. How does that happen? Some Christians have to admit that it doesn't really happen all that much. They've believed the gospel, it's gotten into them, they have accepted the truth of the gospel, but they, they're not <clears throat> growing in the gospel, they don't even frankly know what that looks like. They're not bearing fruit, what does it mean to bear fruit? They don't really know what bearing fruit looks like. Others are growing and bearing fruit, but frankly, if you ask them, how's that happening in your life, they would say, I don't know, the Holy Spirit, like, that's... That's all they got to say. It's the Holy Spirit is at work in me. Yes, I read and I pray and I go to church and the Holy Spirit does these things in me. But Paul talks about this gospel as though there is a a purposeful, methodical, even though it's organic, development of it in the lives of believers and therefore 
in the lives of church? How do you cultivate this fruit and this growth in your life individually as a Christian, if you are a Christian here this morning? And how does that cultivate growth and fruit in the life of this church communally? Good questions, right? I hope you think they're good questions because we're going to try to answer them over the next while. For the next nine weeks, we're going to implant by God's grace through the preaching of the word, through our study and engage groups, through the application of the Bible's teaching to our hearts by the Holy Spirit, we're going to implant gospel DNA within us. And those of us who have it in us already, hopefully we're going to learn a little bit more about about what it means for that gospel to develop in us. We're going to follow three themes and we're going to kind of have three messages based around each of these three themes. We're going to look at what is the gospel, we're going to look at what the gospel does in us, and then we're going to look at how the gospel works through us. That's what we're going to do over the next number of months. And we're going to also be tying uh, our messages into our engage group studies as we dig a little bit deeper together in those groups, applying this, this, uh, this teaching to us. So today, we begin with theme number one. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? And our text helps us understand the gospel and what the gospel tells us. You see, one of the reasons that Christians, even when they come to believe in Jesus, one of the reasons that they don't bear fruit in their lives, frankly, is because they have too small a view of God and too big a view of themselves. Let me say that again. They have too small a view of God, but they have too big a view of themselves. They say, yes, God is holy. Yes, God is just. Yes, God is the creator and the redeemer of all things. But you know, when they relate to God in their, in their relationship with God, they treat God more like a kind of benign grandpa. You know, some grandpas are not benign. My dad's a grandpa. He's not a particularly benign grandpa. My kids, whenever they meet with their grandpa, they always leave going, I don't know what he was talking about. It was something really deep and I didn't understand it. He's not benign. But uh, we sometimes treat God like he is benign. Like he's, he's, you know, he's always got candy in his pocket. And he's always saying here and patting you on the back and making you feel good and off he goes. Even though we say that God is holy and glorious and just, he, he's more of a benign grandpa. And when we think about our own sin, we say to ourselves, well, yeah, I am a sinner, but I'm not that bad. I mean, okay, I hit my sister sometimes when I'm grumpy. Right, kids? Or I lie to my mom once in a while, but not, not really big lies. I'm not out there murdering, killing, raping, pillaging. I'm not that kind of person. And so what happens then is, is the good news of the gospel isn't really that good. You hear, you're a sinner. God is holy. You need to put your trust in Jesus because he died in your place. And you say, well, that's pleasant. That's agreeable. I give my assent to that. It's not traumatic. What we discover in this text this morning is that if you want to know if the gospel has actually gripped you, you will have been traumatized. You will have had an existential experience, an undoing if you will. What am I talking about? Well, John Calvin, who is a theologian from the 
1500s, he used to say this. He used to say that true and sound wisdom consists of two parts, a proper knowledge of God and a proper knowledge of ourselves. And in this text, we see Isaiah experience true knowledge of God and true knowledge of himself so that he had a true knowledge of the gospel. There's our three points. Knowing God truly means knowing yourself truly that you may know the gospel truly. Let's go to work. Let's have a look at this passage together. Just by way of introduction, Isaiah was a prophet in the nation of Israel. And chapter 6 opens with this Isaiah prophet, the, the prophet, uh, having a vision. He, he has a vision into the throne room of God. And what he experiences, what he sees, is God's glory. In verse 3 it says, And one called to another and said, talking about these angels, these strange angels called seraphim, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. This is what Isaiah saw when he looked into the throne room of God. He saw, excuse me, he saw God's glory. Okay, what does that mean? To experience God's glory, to see God's glory. Interestingly enough, the word for glory in Hebrew literally means weight. That's what it means. It means weight or, or even sometimes heaviness. And the idea here is, is that when something has glory, it has more existential weight than something else. Now, that may sound weird to you, so just stick with me. The, the, its being actually envelops and overwhelms the, the beings around it. So, for example, in wintertime, you have a pond with a little bit of ice on it, right? You drop a rock on that thin ice, what happens? The weight of the rock, the glory of the rock, the... The existence, the reality of the rock overwhelms the reality of the ice and it smashes through the ice. It is more weighty and it reorders the ice. The ice is reordered around the reality that is the rock. Or for example, some of you maybe have been on vacation this summer and you went to an incredibly beautiful vista. Maybe you went to the Rocky Mountains. Maybe you went to the Grand Canyon. Maybe you went to the ocean. And you stand in front of one of these things and you just see the vast, the, the sheer size and scope of it. And it makes you feel small, right? You're, you're sort of enveloped by the reality of that thing you're witnessing. This is glory, okay? And so here Isaiah is experiencing the glory of God. It says in verse 4 that when he did... Everything shook, right? It says, And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Everything shook because the reality, God as the ultimate reality, his presence was, was shaking everything around him. There's a kind of a liberal theologian, actually, but a very brilliant theologian in the 20th, 20th century he called God the ground of being. And what he meant by that was that God, and this was right, God is the reality, the ultimate reality upon which every other reality is dependent. Everything in the universe is dependent upon God as the ultimate reality, you see. And for Isaiah, when he experiences the ultimate reality, it's traumatic for him. It causes a change in him. See, in chapters 1 through 5 of Isaiah, 
Isaiah already knows God. He's prophesying about God. He's, he's speaking on behalf of God. But you see, he's only knowing God really as a concept, not as a reality. What does it mean to know God as a concept as opposed to a reality? It's pretty simple. When God is a concept to you, you weigh more than he does. You weigh more than he does. Meaning, God fits into your life. God fits into your world. You are still in charge. You are still, frankly, the center of your universe. And he has been, he has been brought into your universe. If you think of the solar system, what is the weightiest thing in the solar system? It's the sun. And all the planets revolve around it. When God is a concept, you're the sun, and he's Mars, maybe Jupiter, depending on how much he gets of your life. But he's not the center. But when, when you experience God as a reality, he has more weight than you do. And he becomes the center. He becomes the boss. He's in charge. You order your existence around him. Now, in, in our, look it, this is it. This, we, are at, we are at ground zero of the issue, friends. Who is in charge here? Is it you? Or is it him? In our culture today, we weigh more than God. We weigh more than God, even in the church. We still weigh more than God. People talk about having a God of their own understanding in our culture. They're spiritual but not religious. But you see, when you do that, God is not the heaviest thing in your life. You are the heaviest thing in your life. And now maybe you're saying, well, wait a minute, you preacher man, you're, you're talking about God like you are right. Isn't, isn't the God that you're describing just the God of your own understanding? But wait a minute. Wait a minute. Isaiah's whole point is that he had a God of his own understanding, but then he had to submit to the revelation of the true God. He, he saw the true God in Isaiah chapter 6 who was revealed to him. It wasn't his own understanding. It was the opposite of his own understanding. This was a whole other God than he expected. This was a God of transcendent glory and holiness who was not to be trifled with. And Isaiah experienced him finally in the new, in all his glory in that vision. And so his own understanding of God was rearranged by the revelation of God. It's a very different thing. In, in our culture today, you hear people say, look, I can't believe in a God that would dot, dot, dot. Fill in your blank, right? I can't believe in a God that would whatever. But listen, that just means that you are believing in a God who is, well, what it means is, is that your culture your moment in culture, your historical moment, or your individual uh, uh, psychology is more weighty to you than God. Let me help you with this. What do a lot of people say in the church, outside the church? This is what they say. They say, God wants me to be happy. God wants me to be happy. Now, there is a way of defending that statement biblically, but it's not the way that we are using it, 
when we say, God just wants me to be happy. Frankly, that idea does not come from the Bible. That idea comes from our culture. We live in a world today where my own individual personal happiness is the ultimate good to which I should be pursuing. Pursuing. And so we appropriate that belief about God, which is a cultural thing, not a biblical thing. We appropriate that into our lives, and then we say, I do believe in God, and He wants me to be happy, all the while having God merely as a concept, not as a reality. You have more weight than He does, you see. That was Isaiah. And then Isaiah was changed, dramatically changed in Isaiah chapter 6. Why? What happened? Well, he saw God's glory here. Do you notice how it it says, you know, or sorry, he he was changed by experiencing the holiness of God, connected to the glory of God. Let me, in verse uh, 3, it says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In our Call to worship, we quoted from Revelation chapter 4 where it also says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Those are the only two places in the Bible where any triple is used. I think we talked about this last week a little bit when we were talking about holiness. Um, In in the biblical languages, when you want to emphasize something, you double it, right? So David's son Absalom dies. David is very distraught over it to... To show the extent of his emotion, he cries out, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son, right? Uh, This is the only place in these two spots, once in the Old Testament, once in the New Testament, where a triple is used. Not two, but three. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And last time, we, we understood that holiness basically means set apart, right? Set apart sanctified, different. And here it refers to the absolute set-apartness of God, that He is not just a bit different from us. He's not just a higher order of being than us. Like, you're, you're a higher order of being than an ant, right? You're a more complicated being, complex being. There's more DNA to you and chromosomes and amino acids and all that stuff. You are more complex than an ant. This is not saying that God is just sort of more complex than we are. He's not just a higher order of being. He's complete. He's on a different plane. There's a transcendence to him. There is an incomprehensibility to him. There is a surpassingness to him. That's not even a word, but that's the problem. There's no words to describe him. Well, no perfect words to describe him, so we make up words like surpassingness. God is astoundingly, captivatingly, glorious, and beautiful. And the seraphs are calling to one another, holy, holy, holy. And it says in, the New, in Revelation that they're 24-7. They're just cruising around going, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And maybe you're sitting there going, that's all they do all the time? Why would anybody want to do that? Sounds kind of boring, but think about it. Have you ever had a good time that you just wished would not end? I don't know, you're at a party, you're at a wedding, you're at a friend's house. Sometimes you get together with friends and there's just like this, everything's clicking. In a, you know what I'm saying? There are times you get together with your friends, you're like, this is fun. And then there are times where you get together with your friends, you're like, this is a taste of heaven. It is so good. And you just don't want it to end. That's what they're experiencing. 
And you see, they're experiencing just the surpassing beauty of God. The seraphim are experiencing it in such a way that, that they're, they're amazed by God, not because of his usefulness. It's not about utility. It's just because of his, his beauty. Think about your favorite music. You turn that on, you crank it up, you listen to it. Why? Just because you love it. Just because it's beautiful. It doesn't do anything for you. It doesn't, it doesn't advance your cause. It doesn't, it doesn't, you, you don't use it in any kind of way. You just simply enjoy it. Why? Because it's so beautiful to you. Isaiah is here and he sees the seraphim and himself, he experiences that God is worthy of praise simply because of who he is. And friends, you've got to get there. If you are not there, if you are not worshiping God because of who he is, not because he got you a job or he got you out of a jam or he protected your kids on a trip far away from home or he, he made sure that the birth of your child was safe and you asked for that. No, no, no. You've got to come to that place, not where God is just useful to you, but that God is absolutely beautiful to you. Until then, until then, God is only a concept and you will not last. I'm sure everybody here knows at least one person who says, I used to believe in God. I used to believe in God. Yeah, I used to go to church. Yeah, I used to believe all that stuff. And if you probe a little deeper and you ask, well, why don't you believe in God anymore? Almost always, almost always, it boils down to he didn't come through. He didn't come through for me. I asked him to keep so-and-so alive, and he didn't do it. I asked him to give me this thing, and he said, no, what good is he then? Can you imagine yourself standing in front of the Grand Canyon and saying, this is what I want from you, Grand Canyon? No, you stand in front of the Grand Canyon and you reorder your reality up against its glory and you just drink in its beauty. That's what Isaiah did. With Look, imagine you fall in love with someone. You marry them and somewhere along the way they discover you're rich. Like, not just rich, but rich. And they find out that they can't touch your money. And they leave. Did they love you for you? The answer would be no, right? And so often we approach God like a rich lover, expecting him to pay out. And when he doesn't give us what we want, then we say, fine, I'm out. And that's because we haven't understood who God really is. He's the ultimate reality, saying, order yourself, order your life around me. Now, okay, how do you know you've experienced that, that he's not a concept, he's a reality to you? Well, look at, look at Isaiah. It says in verse 5, see, Isaiah knew himself as a result of knowing the true God. And so in verse 5, it says, and I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Look at this reaction. 
Remember, Isaiah thought he was pretty good up until this point. You got to understand something. Isaiah was a member of the elite sort of bureaucracy of the kingdom, okay? He was part of the royal family. He had a very uh, uh, high, I don't know, what do you call that, bloodline or whatever in, in, the, in the, the history of uh, Israel. He was, he was kind of, uh, 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 like I said, a high-level uh, bureaucrat. He had tremendous oral, oral skills. He was a great speaker, And back in those oral cultures, if you were a very good speaker, that made you extremely uh, influential, okay? It says that in the the year that King Uzziah died, he saw this. So Uzziah was an old school king, and he died. There was a power vacuum in Israel. Isaiah was thinking, along with his buddies, the young guys were coming up, you know, we're going to do things a different way. We're going to be in power now. We're going to start making changes. You know, we're going to undo the last government's... uh, uh, policies, and we're going to put in our policies their way better. He was an arrogant man. He was a proud man. And when he sees God's glory, when he says, my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts, when he, when he does that, he's cut down to size. That's what he means when he says, woe is me. That's issuing a curse upon himself. He's saying, I'm cursed. I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. Think about this. This is a guy with a golden tongue. And all of a sudden, he's saying, my lips are unclean. He's not saying, oh, you know, I I swear or or I cuss or something. He's saying, I am profane up against the holiness and the glory of God. He is traumatized by who he is up against who God is. How many people here like to watch, like, America's Got Talent? Anybody here like to watch that? Oh, it's only like two or three of us. Come on. It's like one of the three good shows on TV right now. Anyhow, sorry, I don't mean to scold you for your TV watching habits, but America's Got Talent, right? You imagine, you know, you're watching America's Got Talent, and it's so funny. You get these stories, right? You know, in my little hometown of 87 people in Wisconsin, I was a great singer, and I won the awards at school, and I did the solo in the school play and stuff like that, and people said, you got to go on America's Got Talent, and so they go on America's Got Talent, and then they're just in that rehearsal room before they even go out to 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 make their pitch they're in that rehearsal room and people are just warming up and they're sitting there beside people who can really sing and they're going and they're like you can just see the abject fear come over their face they're like shame and embarrassment like what am i even doing here because i thought i was good but now i see what good is and I'm totally embarrassed and I'm totally ashamed and I'm, I can't even believe I thought I had a chance like this. I just want to crawl under a rock and die. It happens on a human level all the time. You think you're good at something and then you meet someone who's good at something. This is what happens to Isaiah. He sees himself for what he really is. Like I said earlier, today we don't see ourselves for what we really are. We say, I'm not so bad. Yeah, I make mistakes, but I mean, I'm no Hitler, right? So what do we do with our sins? We minimize our sins. We say, look, viewing pornography is just part of being a man in today's age. It's not that big a deal. It's biology. Or we defend our sin. We say, I got a very stressful job, so cut me a little slack. Or we hide our sin, you know? Nobody needs to see this, that I operate half my business on cash or something like that. 
Or we blame shift and we say, you know, I wouldn't be like that, but she just pushes my buttons. She's so good at it. You know, sometimes people talk about, you know, people, you meet people who have a temper and then they explode, right? And uh, they say afterwards, they go, well, you know, I, I, just, I just lost control. That's not the real me. And the reality is, actually, you lost control and you just let everybody see the real you. That's what happens when you lose your temper. Arthur Conan Doyle, some of you know him, he wrote all the Sherlock Holmes books. I don't know if this is true. I tried to check it out on Snopes.com to see if this is true or not, but it's, I don't know. But it's a great story, so I'll use it anyway. He apparently, at one point, wrote a telegram to his three, some say five, closest friends. And all the telegram said was, all is discovered, flee at once. That's all it said. Within 24 hours, they were all gone. Couldn't find them. Come on, you got secrets. You've got stuff that if anybody knew, you'd be on the first plane to Buenos Aires or something. What I'm saying is, is when you see the glory of God, you also see yourself more clearly. You discover that you are, frankly, more sinful, more selfish, more hard-hearted than you're ever willing to admit. And I know we don't like that, and probably you're sitting here, some of you maybe are going, well, this is probably not good for our self-esteem. Should you be saying this? Don't, shouldn't you be improving our self-esteem? Isn't the problem low self-esteem? I can't go into it. I, maybe I'll do a talk on it someday in a different context, but let me tell you right now, counselors will tell you the self-esteem movement has been an abject failure. It has not ruined a whole generation. I mean, that's a little dramatic, but it has... Some of you poor people have been traumatized by your high self-esteem, frankly. It makes people imp- incapable of dealing with failure, admitting shortcomings, accepting their limitations, overcoming adversity. It goes on and on. You go to university campuses and students are protesting when, when professors put forward ideas they don't like. High self-esteem is, if you think about it, it's kind of, there's, a, there's an old-fashioned term for self-esteem. It's called pride, self-esteem. I feel good about myself. I think I'm great. Listen, Isaiah saw himself clearly, and he couldn't escape it under the, the bright gaze of the glory of God. But, but that's not the end of the story, because when you know yourself, when you know God truly and you know yourself truly, that makes you ripe, if I can use that term, It makes you ripe for knowing the gospel truly. In this story, something astounding happens. Keep reading. After Isaiah admits who he is, it says in verse 6, one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. Stop there. Isaiah sees this angel. As soon as he recognizes he has no right to be in the presence of God, this angel takes a tong and flies at him with this tongue, and it's got this burning coal in it. Now, in the Bible, fire from the altar of God, fire from God, it always means judgment. 
And so Isaiah is looking at this thing coming at him and he says, I'm about to get judged. I'm about to get destroyed. I'm about to get consumed by the holy wrath of God. And it touches his lips, which is sort of the the center of his sinfulness, right? That he has understood about being a man of unclean lips. And it touches his lips. And instead of him being destroyed by touching the fire of God, he's cleansed. And it says in verse 7, He touched my my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. God completely broke Isaiah's categories, you see. And he, he cleansed Isaiah when Isaiah thought he was going to be consumed. And as soon as he gets cleansed, he even gets affirmed because in verse 8 it says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go. Basically what happens is this. Isaiah gets cleansed. He experiences God's forgiveness. His atonement, his guilt is taken away before God. And and God says, I have a plan to save the world and I want to invite you into that plan, Isaiah. Isaiah. Not only are you more wicked than you ever dared imagine, Isaiah, but now you've got to see that you are more loved and cherished and delighted in than you ever dared hope. I know everything about you. I know who you are, and I have, I have cleansed you. I have redeemed you, and I am now welcoming you into my reality, the reality which is to save the world through the blood of my son. How could could that fire cleanse him? Well, because if you go to the New Testament, you read about this man named Jesus who came into the world claiming that he was the son of God. That he was the personification of the vision that Isaiah saw. Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord and Jesus said, I am the glory of the Lord. For I am the Lord in human flesh. And in Luke chapter 12, he's talking to disciples and he's telling them about things that are going to happen. And he's explaining things to them. And one point, he finally says to them this. He says in Luke 12, verses 49 and 50, he says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying... When I go to the cross, I will bring fire on earth. I will bring the judgment of God on earth. But it will not consume you and me, the people who, who's, who are people of unclean lips, the mockers and the scoffers and the jokers and the people who don't take him seriously and the people who want to be their own reality and just add a little God into their world. He doesn't consume us. but rather he was consumed when he took the fire of God's judgment on himself. Jesus on the cross says to you, your sin, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Every time you look at the cross, you see, every time you think of the cross, it tells you, yes, you're a wicked sinner, but you are a deeply loved, cherished child at exactly the same time. And that, friends, is what you call the gospel grid. See, when you first become a Christian, and this is whether you were raised in a church or not, when you first become a Christian, you do get a glimpse 
of the holiness of God and, the, and, and your sin, your need for forgiveness. But the Christian life, you know what it really basically is about? It's about deepening both those truths. So you start here and you say, I see the holiness of God and I see the, the, the depths of my sin. And in there, the gap is, is bridged by the cross of Jesus Christ. But as you grow in faith, as you grow in Christ, you grow in a knowledge of his holiness and you grow in the knowledge of the depth of your sin. You get to see more and more of both things. And so the cross that, that bridges the gap, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger in your life. That's the gospel grid. That's what it means to be gospel-centered, okay? And it shapes the kind of person that you will be. Just very briefly, very quickly, you see it in Isaiah in the very end. What kind of person do you become? Isaiah already becomes kind of this person. First of all, you become available. God says, whom shall I send? Isaiah says, send me. You notice that God doesn't even, ask, it doesn't even describe the job. He doesn't say, by the way, I've got a job to do. Da, 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 da. Who wants to go? He just says, who, wants to, who, who should I send? And Isaiah right away is available. He says, send me. I don't know what the job is. Command me. I'm yours. Increasingly, you become like that. And not only is he, is he available, he becomes dependable. God says, here's what you're going to do, Isaiah. Now I'll give you the job description since you've signed on the dotted line and, and taken up the contract. I want you to go to my people and I want you to preach to them. And Isaiah says, what do you want me to preach? Oh, I want you to preach the stuff that you just discovered, that they are wicked, wicked sinners deserving of my judgment. And Isaiah says, oh, okay. Oh, and by the way, I want you to do that for decades and decades on end, and they're not going to listen to you at all. You're going to get no fruit from your labors. They are just going to stop up their ears and say, la, 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 I can't hear you. And Isaiah says, Okay. That's what I got to do. Because I have you, I can do that. Because you are beautiful to me, I can do that. Because you are the ultimate reality, I will do that. But it doesn't end just with that, because then you'd be like, oh, really? <laughs> He's also hopeful. At the very end, God says to him, though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is in its stump. He's basically saying the whole forest that is Israel, it's going to be cut down and there's going to be stumps and that's all that's going to be left. But the holy seed is in that one stump. He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the Savior. He's saying, I have not forsaken my people. I will one day raise up the holy seed and I will put everything right. And that's the promise today too. One day Jesus returns to put everything right. But this is the kind of person Isaiah becomes. He becomes a man of hope. He becomes a man of dependability. He becomes a man of availability. As the gospel looms larger in your life, may that become more and more the kind of person you are. By the power of the Spirit, of course. Not under your own strength, but under His. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel grid. We repent of having too low a view of yourself and too high a view of ourselves. Help us to invert that and to see that you are the ultimate reality and we must fit in with you. But when we do, we find our place and we understand where, where we are meant to be. Gracious God, 
Turn us into people who are available to you, who are dependable, who are hopeful, so that the world can see that you indeed are true. In Jesus we pray, amen.